So this is the fifth lecture in Frontiers, and uh, I was remarking upon the fact that every subject I seem to have chosen two years ago seems to now be kind of in the mainstream. So either I'm really good at forecasting or driving the media or, I don't know, something else is going on. But anyway, tonight we're going to talk about pollution. We're going to talk about the nature of pollution in terms of health, but also I'm going to touch upon ethics and morals. Um, I'm really, really pleased that uh, my colleague, who actually in, in a way is the inspiration for the beginning part of this talk, is here with us, David G. And I want to just uh, show you my two props before we start. These are two books, two volumes, produced by the European Environment Agency. One is uh, published in 2003, Late Lessons from Early Warnings. I think you kind of get the message here. We keep telling them but nothing happens. This one is about the precautionary principle. Um, and going back to 1896, so it's not a modern phenomenon, been going on for a very long time, volume one. And then just to make the point, uh, you need a very big book to persuade people. Uh, second book weighs an absolute ton. Uh, I'm sure David would like to sell it for some large amount of money, by the way. Uh, late lessons from early warnings, science, precaution and innovation. I thoroughly recommend you can see them online if you go to the European Environment Agency. And there you can read from the core of the science that was hidden away, deathbed confessions. I mean, it's, it's a real roller coaster of stories. And you're left at the end thinking, but why didn't we do anything? And that's really part of the core of my talk tonight is we've got plenty of evidence, we've got plenty of knowledge. What is it that stops us acting? And what can be the moral imperative that brings that intertwining of pollution and human health together to make us act? But on a much more joyous note, let me start then with this weekend. Um, I'm sure many of you are avid followers of running, of the marathon, and I'm sure you will have been delighted to have seen, seen as I am, having just arrived from Kenya, and in fact I travelled on the same aeroplane, which was quite a thrill, um, that Eliud Kipchoge won the marathon by quite a large margin, and Bridget Kosgei was the youngest winner in the women's group, uh, and so and so on. Many personal bests were broken, many time records were broken, and so forth. The winners came from Kenya and Ethiopia. So this is a phenomenon that people have talked about, and I live and I work sometimes up close to Iten. When you go in, it's a very small little town, the town of champions. There are more Olympic gold medals in this small little town than there are in many countries around the world. So there are Olympic golds, there are many world championships and so forth. So what is it about Iten, remember that name, in, Ethi in Kenya, but also in Ethiopia? What is it about these places? Well, Nike decided that they were going to take the challenge. And they were going to look at this using, of course, the, the wonderful person Eliod Chipchoge to see whether it was possible to break the two-hour barrier. And so they made a film about a phenomenal process where they looked into every single aspect of what it would take to break the two-hour barrier. So I'm going to show you just a short little trailer for a documentary that you can get and download online. Breaking the two-hour marathon barrier is impossible. Everyone knows that. History knows it. Science knows it. 
Anyone in their right mind knows it. It's crazy. Nobody can run that fast for that long. So, we're doing it. detail, um, looking at every single aspect of the race, but apart from the shoes, apart from the track, apart from the clothes, apart from the training and everything else, they forgot one thing. Off they went to Italy to do the time trial and, very unfortunately, Elliot didn't make it. You know the one thing that they didn't test? Air quality. They never checked the air quality. Now, if you look at how the guys train in Iten, you'll see on the left-hand side, this is a typical day in Iten, and it's green. Just, just take the colour as being good to go, green. And what's interesting is if you, if you go to Iten, you'll see that the athletes come out and they train. Round, they start training around about 6, 6.30 in the morning, and they train through, and then they stop. And you'll see that's exactly when all green, all green. Beautiful air quality, absolutely no problems. Occasionally there are some dust storms, but generally speaking, it's a very, very high quality environment. Pity then the poor athletes that are training in Beijing, in London, in many other cities, because of course, as we know, that if you are essentially exerting yourself, you are effectively taking in up to four times the amount of, let's put it this way, particulate matter and pollutants that you would do as if you were in a standing position. Now, when the Beijing Games were put on the table, of course, there was an uproar because many athletes were very, very concerned about the quality of air. So, in fact, what they did was they shut down traffic, they literally shut down industry. And it is true that during the Beijing Games, more than any other Olympic Games, gold medals were broken. There were uh, fastest times, there were best performances and so forth. But interestingly, in the marathon, we see consistently again and again that if you don't take any kind of special care about air quality, you'll see that the consequences are very significant. There was a study done of seven major US marathons. When they looked very carefully at air quality at the time of the marathon, they saw, in fact, that there was a negative correlation, particularly amongst the women, between performance and air quality. And it just seems completely natural because what does air pollution do? Well, it decreases your maximum oxygen uptake. It increases the kind of inflammatory blood markers. And generally speaking, it's just not a good thing to be running in poor air quality conditions. So it really affects not just elite athletes, but also ordinary untrained individuals. So you and I walking around, we know that air quality can directly affect our performance. So let's just think about pollution more generally. It is true to say that we live, particularly in cities, in rather unhealthy environments. Um, if I think about the definition of pollution, and I'll read it to you, 
This is taken from uh, GEMIT. It's a kind of a, a data source of definitions. Pollution is the introduction of substances or energy into the environment, resulting in deleterious effects of such a nature as to endanger human health, harm living resources and ecosystems, and impair or interfere with amenities and other legitimate uses of the environment. It touches all parts of our planet. So what are we to do? We have a spectacular history in terms of chemicals and chemical innovation, but in each time that we've seen these innovations come forward, there have actually been great concerns raised about potentially increasing levels of pollution. And today, you can pretty much go anywhere on planet Earth and find pollutants of one form or another. You can go to the polar regions, you can go to 10,000 metres deep in the trenches, in the abyssal trenches of the ocean, and there you can even find creatures that have actually got chemicals such as flame retardants, paint plasticizers, waterproofers within their bodies. So there isn't one part of the planet that hasn't been touched by pollutants. There's a rather remote set of islands, an archipelago called the Chagos Islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean, where we've been trying to create a kind of baseline to see whether or not contamination is getting there. Some of you may know it more familiarly from the term Diego Garcia. It's a, a, an American bomber base that we happen to give away to the Americans. Nevertheless, there's no human habitation other than just on a couple of islands. And even now, we begin to see all of these different, different pollutants. So thousands of kilometers away from any industrial source. And yet there it is in the organisms and in the waters. So the real challenge is how to control how to work with industry, how to essentially deal with the kind of consumerist patterns that we have, to think about how generally we can reduce pollution, but more importantly, how can we reduce our exposure to it? The challenge is that there are thousands of new chemicals that are released pretty much every year. In Europe, we have a number of ways in which we deal with that, but just to give you an idea, it takes a long time sometimes to get people's attention. In fact, it took 107 years to get the attention and thousands of deaths to get the ban on asbestos, 107 years. It took more than 50 years to actually deal with mercury as part of the Minamata Convention. So towards the end of this talk, I'm going to see what it is that actually makes people resist evidence of harm and why it is that we can't move more quickly to either reduce the impacts of these chemicals that are coming in or actually look for alternatives. So we're not talking about being anti-chemical. What we're talking about is understanding what the impacts of these are in terms of human health and ecosystems. So let's think about pollution. It's in the food we eat. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the water that we drink. The WHO, the World Health Organization, estimates that 19 million people, uh, the premature deaths, their, their premature deaths actually are related to environmental conditions and the way that we use natural resources. 19 million deaths every year. And nearly a quarter of, uh, nearly a quarter of all of those actually are due to just environmental causes. So if you think about every year, nearly 8 million people literally dying because of environmental causes, then seriously the flag has to go up. But there's a greater challenge for us because, in fact, it's not just evenly distributed. If you think about what's happening around the world, you of course see 
that the lower and middle income countries are the ones that are the most affected. So in this graph, what you're looking at are infectious and parasitic and uh, nutritional diseases in the light blue, the non-communicable diseases, the ones we're sort of talking about in the orange, and in injuries uh, in, in the green. So, of course, the big numbers stand out. Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, huge problems. But look also, in Europe, we have particularly high levels of non-communicable diseases. So pretty much all parts of the world are touched by environmental issues. Now, pollution can take many different forms, um, but the crucial thing is the kind of diseases that are associated with pollution. So it, it reads like a roll call of going into the hospital. We have diarrheal diseases. Many, many children die from diarrheal diseases. What's here is called the dailies, the disease-adjusted life years, are significant numbers. And generally speaking, we can talk about diarrheal diseases being associated with poor water, inadequate water, sanitation, contaminated water. But there's also asthma. There's also lower respiratory infections, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cardiovascular diseases. We know that air quality, and in particular particulate matter, affects cardiovascular um, performance. We're linking it also directly to cancers and to neonatal conditions. So there are many uh, ways in which we are beginning to see the evidence mounting up that, in fact, these diseases aren't just simply due to vulnerability, that factors coming from genetics, maybe from your age and where you live and so forth, but there really is a genuine environmental cause. So let's start to sort of unpack this and, and start to look at where you are most exposed. And clearly, one of the big issues is air quality. We have here a, an ultra-fine um, emission zone, so therefore excluding diesel cars and so forth is a, is a step in the right direction. But when we think about the broader picture around the world, then you see, of course, vehicles like this. Now, why do we have vehicles like this? Well, we have vehicles like this because countries export their old vehicles to countries like this. So there's, not, there's, nothing, um, there's nothing particularly benign about the export industry when what it's doing is delivering vehicles onto the street that are clearly underperforming. So these are the kind of things that we can absolutely fix. We do not have to have uh, incomplete combustion in old vehicles as the kind of daily given. But nevertheless, there are very, very few countries that would restrict the import of vehicles that are older than, say, uh, four or five years. Now, in Kenya, for example, which is where this photograph is taken, there's recently been introduced a, um, a new regulation which says there can be no vehicles on the road older than eight years, and in a couple of years' time, that is coming down to five years. That is a very, very important step forward and one that has huge economic implications for some of the poorest or those who are just literally able to get a vehicle to have a livelihood to drive people around. So there's a strong balance between cutting people out of a livelihood and actually maintaining a clean environment for all. And this is where some of the biggest ethical questions and moral questions come up. There are endless endless uh, instances of burning, burning of waste, even in little local settings and villages, 
ladies will and men will burn unknowingly and unwittingly things that are highly toxic, not just electronic waste, but also plastics and so forth. And of course, the temperatures are ridiculous. I mean, they're literally down at 150, maybe 200 degrees, maybe 300 degrees. But to deal with dioxins, to deal with the contaminants and the hazardous chemicals that are released upon the burn, you need to be up at 1600 degrees. So you need proper incineration. Now, that's just simply not happening. So all over the world, in Southeast Asia, everywhere, you see these kind of semi-controlled burn areas, often done in the backyards where people and young children are just simply playing in the midst of all of this smoke. Then there are natural events. This one was taken during the wildfire events last summer. Um, can you do anything about it? Well, no, it's very, very difficult. How would you control the particulates and the smoke coming from these large-scale events? Nevertheless, during that single event process in California, then in Calgary and other places, you actually are not only exposing the population to almost a lifetime of, some, in some cases, particulates and heavy metals, but it's very, very clear that most, or most uh, governments are not tracking it. They're not paying attention to this. So there are natural events, such as wildfires, and then there are even more spectacular events like sand and dust storms. Sand and dust storms, particularly dust storms, are a phenomenal process in the Middle East. All those areas surrounding typical basins like the, uh, the Sahara. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever been in one. They are absolutely the most frightening thing. I've been in one and it's not, not a pleasant thing at all. But if you don't get killed from asphyxiation, there are many other things that the, that the dust carries. Fine mineral particles, um, pollutants, dust spores, all kinds of allergens, bacteria, fungi. So it's literally a case of the, the dust carrying many things inside your body. So the after effects of dust storms can sometimes be much more devastating than in fact the dust storm itself. And finally, when we look down the whole list, we have a whole range of sources and each one of them is associated with incomplete combustion, which means that it's generating what we would call black carbon or particulate matter. And this is a kind of way of carrying materials, pollutants, into your body. Because it's really clear that if you have large size particles, PM10 as we might call them, the nose is uniquely set up to trap all of that with all the hairs inside your nose. And actually you do quite well. You blow your nose and kind of that's it. But when you get into the ultrafine, actually our body is not very well attended to deal with that. So in fact, when we look at particulate matter coming from stationary sources, power plants, for example, all kinds of manufacturing facilities, then you run into real problems. We have households where you see a lot of women and children very close to fires, a lot of smoke, um, literally inhaling all the time all kinds of particulates. You have controlled and uncontrolled burning, controlled burning, seems to be legal in many places, but this is like actually putting a big tick on, we're now going to pollute a lot of people. This is where, for example, farmers burn their stubble down. Um, so there's very, very clear problems with that. And then, of course, the mobile sources, as I said, old cars on the road. And then finally, these dust storms. So the sources are wide and diverse. So how do you regulate something that's as diverse as that? Well, we'll come to it, but in the end... 
It's a moral decision. Do you want to breathe clean air? Do you think you have a right to breathe clean air? And if so, who should be responsible for making sure that your right is actually delivered? Some of the nastier things that happen with air pollution is that it continues to get you across your whole lifespan. And it's really the single largest cause of all these non-communicable disease mortality. You can see the kinds of things that are happening. And now this is not without vast bodies of evidence. So these are not just a single paper here and there. As one of our colleagues um, has said before, you know, as he was polishing the stone of the 450th publication on the effects of heavy metals, um, you get to the point where you think, well, what will one more paper do? So there is genuine evidence, again and again and again, of what air quality can do and air pollution does to us. So the ones clearly are the accepted effects, the possible effects are becoming more and more understood. To the point now where in the last few weeks there's been um, some very, very interesting papers and, re and uh, evidence that in fact air pollution, particularly particulates, is one of the causes of autism and also dementia. And I will come back to why we think that is happening. So let's move on to another source, water. Um, the story around water is, is obviously very well known. It's, it's understood very, very clearly. We've got nearly two and a half billion people using um, unimproved sanitation. So what does that mean? That means nearly a billion people having open defecation with all of the things that that means. Um, most health facilities, half of the health facilities in Africa don't have any access to clean water. Uh, what we can see is that all of this unsafe water, um, unhygienic uh, conditions, is literally linked to 3.5 million deaths a year. That's 25% of the deaths of young people under the age of 14. So water is, is a really, really clear source of not only mortality but long-standing long problems because we see that there's a lot of bacterial infections and so forth. There's lots of diseases that are associated with it. So we can have absolute clarity that cholera, diarrhoea, dysentery, hepatitis A, polio, lots of stunting because of bacterial infections, all of these can be traced back to poor water quality. So in the end... What are we doing? We're just rehearsing again and again. These numbers just roll, roll out. You know, approximately a thousand children per day die from diarrheal diseases. And what I observe is that these figures are, are really, uh, in a sense, they're a moral insult to someone who, like myself, who's trying to make a difference, who's actually trying to work with governments to change the outcomes. And you're sort of left with this impression, in many cases, that the numbers begin to lack meaning. They, they simply don't have that resonance. But if I was to fill this lecture theatre four times over with children, I, I'm sure that you would begin to understand morally what we're talking about. Okay, they're distributed all around the world, but it's just endless. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are dying from water pollution every single day. And just like air pollution, we know how to fix it. We also know it's not very expensive to fix. So again, the question is, why is it 
that we are genuinely unable to make the difference. Well, one of the problems is that it kind of goes out of sight, out of mind. Once you've dumped your rubbish, you sort of think, well, that's it, you know, been taken care of or whatever. So in most countries where waste is not well managed and not dealt with in a very consistent way, it'll end up in places like this. And I'm sure many of you are aware of all the children who are involved in waste picking, creating livelihoods, making money, picking out things. But at the end of the day, what we're saying to these children is it's okay to be exposed to all kinds of hazardous waste, to all kinds of things that are mixed in and amongst all the things that they manage to pick out to recycle. Um, not only that, most of these contaminated areas are leaching into the groundwater. So eventually the whole thing comes back. So it's not just that you're standing in the rubbish, you're actually drinking the rubbish, you're drinking all the chemicals that come from that. So when we think about um, water, this is a particularly extreme case. This is a river in, in uh, India where the plastics have got agitated so much that they've actually become a froth, they've actually become a foam. And people enter into the river because it has sacred properties. And, and you can see this is a young man who's gone in to pray amongst what can only be described as a kind of plastic latte, uh, presumably, which uh, is a very, very unpleasant experience to do that. And then we compound the problem by actually doing many things like, for example, having almost indiscriminate spraying in, pl in plenty of places around the world of pesticides, of a whole range of different chemicals. Yes, they're controlled to a certain extent, but in the end, all of this ends up in the water. So when we think about land and when we think about water, they are inextricably bound together. So some of the figures, I mean, they just literally jump out at you. But at the end of the day, there are many other things that we don't have enough data on, but we pretty much know that they're going to affect us and the ecosystems. So nitrates, nitrites, these are things that you wouldn't want to be consuming in your food, and yet we're actually exposing ourselves to this through our drinking water. When we think about the culprits, and I, and I use that word very carefully, it's not to blame uh, those who are undertaking those particular uh, sectors, who are involved in those sectors, because we're all involved in this. Agriculture, construction, mining, waste... These are the kind of the bits of the, these are sort of everyday life. But actually every single action that we undertake has consequences, has pollution consequences. So you hear a lot about the circular economy. You hear a lot about how we're going to try to sort of capture everything. But from the minute you start working in a farm, the minute you start constructing, the minute you start mining, you're actually, so to speak, on guard. And so if you think about toxic activities like mining. The difference for these particular communities from those who don't have access to artisanal mining and those who are engaged in it is essentially to live for another day. And when you think about these vast areas that are opening up, and here I put one caveat on because sometimes people look at satellite pictures and they immediately say, oh, that's, that's mining, that's artisanal mining. In many cases, it's not. It's just forest clearance for things like cocoa and other things. So be very careful when you, when you read documents about artisanal mining and gold contamination and arsenic and so forth. But when you do actually see artisanal mining, 
you see it just expands overnight. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, you need water. You need to have fresh water supplies to clean out. And there you see the two together. This is what it looks like on the ground in that particular place. It's pretty grim, right? It's not a great place to be. So not only are you actually seeing all of these toxic activities, but you're actually imagining the individuals who are involved in this absorbing the arsenic, the mercury, the gold, and many other kind of heavy metals as part of the mining process. So these compounds are, in a sense, stored in the body. And what we know from a lot of biochemistry and also from a lot of physiology is that many of them, alongside of pesticides and others, accumulate in the body. So it's virtually impossible to actually rid yourself of that kind of exposure. So when we think about land and soil pollution, we think about heavy metals that have got into the soil that are literally there and we're growing our food in it. And it can come from many different routes. It can come from air, it can come from water, it can come from direct application. So we're looking at things like lead and mercury, arsenic, cadmium, chromium, things that you really don't want to be accumulating in your body, persistent organic pollutants, pesticides, many pharmaceuticals. And they're used in a daily way in agriculture and sometimes in a coincidental way to undertake things such as mining. Now, they do many things. They degrade soil biodiversity. And that's tremendously important when it comes to our food because, of course, one of the great things about um, soil replenishment and soil regeneration is that on a regular basis, the food that we grow, which extracts nutrients, is in a sense replenished. But when you have a lot of heavy metals, the bacteria and many of the macrofauna just simply aren't able to survive. So not only does it affect biodiversity, but that affects productivity, but it also, in a way, stops a lot of diseases from being controlled. So if you go to, for example, East Africa, where I am, you'll see that there are many diseases that spread very quickly. Anthrax, for example. There's an outbreak of anthrax. There have been outbreaks of CPD. There's been many outbreaks of blue tongue and other diseases. The challenge with these is that they reside now in the top layers of the soil because the soil is, in a way, not very healthy. It means that whenever there's heavy rains, those active agents then just spread out into the fresh water. They spread out into the system and then get picked up. So by literally running down our soil quality, we've actually opened up a whole different avenue for ourselves to be exposed to now biological pollutants. Now, not only do they degrade um, the kind of soil and so forth, but the challenge we have is that we don't really know what's going on. It's very, very difficult in many of these countries, uh, such as uh, even in Kenya, but certainly in many countries in Africa, to find out what the quality of soil is. Now, in my next lecture, I'm going to talk about uh, how we can determine soil quality from space. So there's some amazing new innovations on that. But right now, it's actually rather difficult to find out essentially what's going on. And then the final piece of the puzzle is what happens in the coasts and in the seas around us and in the marine environment. You cannot have missed the fact that marine plastics, litter, marine debris is something that many, many, many governments and people are very, very concerned with. And rightly so, because in fact, marine plastics have become pervasive. 
in the recent uh, United Nations Environment Assembly, where there have been a number of resolutions relating to marine plastics, it is now clear that most or three quarters of marine litter is comprised of plastic. So from a land source, which can be as diverse as agriculture, um, your own households, the, the, the many industries that use uh, plastics from hospitals and all the way through, all of this is ending up on our beaches and certainly in the oceans. It's about inadequate waste management, but it's also not understanding the role that some of this plastic, particularly the micro uh, litter and microplastics, is actually playing in the oceans. So there's some evidence, I have to say slightly contested, but nevertheless there is some evidence, that it only breaks down to a certain point. It may actually sink, but it becomes, in fact, a carrier, and it can carry all kinds of things. So plastics can perform two different functions. They can become attractors for heavy metals and even for some zoonoses and viruses and so forth, or repellers. And the thing that worries a lot of scientists who've been studying what these microplastics are doing is that the ones that are carrying particularly heavy metals are then ingested, certainly by a whole raft of marine organisms, and then we consume those. So these marine plastics deliver literally into the food chain concentrated levels of pollutants, particularly heavy metals, and then those just literally get magnified up the food chain. And these are the fish, and these are the organisms that we're eating. So <clears throat> even though we know that some chemicals have been banned for more than 20 years, we're still seeing them now turning up inside marine food chains. And those of you who watch issues around the polar regions, around the Arctic, will know the age-old story of mercury and mercury accumulation, where particularly in the marine mammals, where there's a lot of fatty tissue, these sort of heavy metals can become accumulated, and then it's just a matter of time before that gets taken over by ladies who are breastfeeding, by people who are eating the foods as pretty much their only source of protein. So marine pollution is something which is sort of out of sight and out of mind. It's certainly unsightly on the beach. And my concern is that, much as I really do think it's fantastic that people join campaigns, they join clean seas and so forth, they do beach litter pickups. The problem is that on the next tide, it all comes back again. More comes back again. So it's like an endless, endless journey of cleaning up the beach and going back and cleaning up the beach again. So if we just look at these sort of three pictures at the top, we've got nutrients. This relates back again to agriculture, of course, to runoff of nitrates into the coastal areas. And you can see that the impacts are very large in certain places. In fact, we now have more than 300, more than 500 dead zones. So these are areas which have had so much nutrient put into them that effectively organisms um, just cannot compete. There's not enough oxygen for them to uh, survive. So you can see some of these dead zones, particularly if you look in, um, in North America, around Texas and so forth, Gulf of Mexico. Um, if you look at PCBs, not nice things, quite nasty, quite a lot of concentration all around the coasts. So these are essentially accumulating both in the sediments, but also now in organisms. And then you can see some of the floating plastic debris, the risk categories. Now, these figures are 
very broad. You can see from 4.8 to 12.7, that's a very large range in terms of the estimates. But nevertheless, even if it was at the bottom end, 4.8 million tonnes of plastic waste entering each year is an enormous amount. So one metric tonne, to give you an idea, would fill this lecture hall. So 4.8 million of them is a lot of lecture halls of plastic rubbish, okay, let alone 12.7. And then just from rivers, three quarters coming in a particular period, and 20 of those rivers are mostly in Asia, accounting for nearly two-thirds of the total. So we kind of know where the problems reside. The question is, can we go in? What can we do about it? Because there's no doubt that marine plastics, in the end, are having a huge effect not only on the marine life, but ultimately on things like climate control and the way in which um, we can actually mitigate against some of the problems uh, in the atmosphere. So let me end with chemicals, chemicals and waste. There are many places around the world, particularly in the ex-Soviet states, but they're not alone, where you can find very, very serious hazardous waste um, sitting in places like this, so drums filled with all kinds of very, very nasty hazardous toxic chemicals, obsolete pesticides, a whole range of things. And yes, there are ways to deal with it. You take the tins, you take the cans, you take the barrels, and you can incinerate. That's one certain avenue. But you need some very sophisticated machinery to be able to do that. And so the temptation is, in fact, to just simply dump it and hide away and hope it never comes back. But what we see, of course, is there are many orphan sites all around the world where these kinds of chemicals are literally just sitting like time bombs, waiting to kind of pour into, the, pour into our water systems. And they include things like um, endocrine disruptors, poly, uh, polychlorinated biphenols, PCB, DDT, many things that were banned years ago, but they're still around. They're still around. Because... Nobody actually said what to do with them after they were banned. So people just put them in warehouses. So all over, from Ukraine, all the way through some of the stands, you'll find them. And in and amongst all of this, um, you find interesting things like um, large accumulations of asbestos. Obviously, it was banned. Nobody asked where it went. Uh, so people just coincidentally are being exposed even to, to chemicals that are um, really should have been removed from certainly occupational exposure. So when we think about chemical pollution, um, we've got the sort of headline figures. They're not sort of large numbers, but actually, again, I come back to the fact that more than 100,000 people dying every year from asbestos, something that we have banned. 674,000 people coming uh, dying from lead, something which we're working on in terms of fuel and paint. Uh, you know, many people who have lung cancer clearly associated with their occupational exposure to chemicals and pollutants. 3.3 million cases of poisonings. Poisonings coming from things such as spraying of pesticides. And here we see that, um, you know, we think it's probably a minimum of 3 million people. And the people who are greatly exposed are women. In Bangladesh, for example, 5 to 10 days after there's been a spraying. You can see uh, there's been many cases where um, the detection has been extraordinarily high amongst some of the, the female population. So a lot of heavy metals, lead, chromium, cadmium, 
are entering in from farm operations, um, application of sewage sludge, for example, on our fields as a fertilizer. There's a metal-based pesticides. So many ideas which say, oh, let's put this onto the field because it will help actually to improve the fertility and the productivity. If you don't know the chemical composition, you're actually just poisoning the soils, the very soils that you're trying to improve. We've heard, I've, I talked about it earlier in another lecture, about the overuse of antibiotics, livestock, vet, uh, the veterinary uses of it, huge, huge amounts go into our soils. And particularly children, they are very, very susceptible to all kinds of, um, uh, to, to all of these uh, particular inputs. I mean, if I think about uh, the impacts of chemicals, we've seen children's diseases associated with mental health, um, mercury and lead exposure in utero and early life can result in mental retardation. There are so many studies that link exposure of children, pre-birth and post-birth, to heavy metals and the impact that it has on cognitive development. So on the left-hand side, you see some of the heavy metals that are most of concern, beryllium, chromium, arsenic, cadmium, and so forth. And then on the right-hand side, you can see how they have been at least linked to problems in the different parts of your body. So for the whole of your life, for the whole of your body, literally pollutants are a problem. So the question is, why haven't we all died yet? Well, it takes quite a long time to kill off a human, I can tell you that much. But it is very interesting that if you look at the demography of our populations, and you look at particularly countries where there were never good processes, good management processes for handling chemicals, then you actually see that counter to what we would think with improved life, with improved water and so forth, actually people are dying younger than their parents. So already we see that in some of the ex-Soviet states. And what many are thinking now is that that early exposure to a vast range of heavy metals and chemicals is actually now beginning to, is now beginning to show itself. So that's not to raise too many alarm bells, but it's certainly something that one should consider, that we may not be as well off as a population today as our parents as a generation before us, who were not exposed to as many pollutants as perhaps we are. So toxic heavy metal pollution is really a public health risk. Yes, it does definitely lead to individual diseases, but more generally, it is a public health issue, whether it's from mine tailings or whether it is, in fact, telling us about the long-term impacts. So if you study... Um, sort of neurological data and, and neurological evidence, and you look at how brain studies are going, there are so many mechanisms where heavy metals are having direct impact on not only how the brain is functioning, but also how it developed certainly early, earlier on um, during the first 1,000 days. So if you skip to the end of life and you think about dementia and you think about Alzheimer's, actually that little piece that says toxins is potentially far, far, far more important than some of the other genetic factors than we've been thinking about. So compromising our genetic vulnerabilities, if I can call that, through our exposure to a whole raft of pollutants is clearly something that we should pay attention to. Now, there are 
diets. There are different things that people have said which you can undertake to try to minimise the effects of toxins. And it's certainly something that you should be aware of. But that's down to the individual. Let's just step back a bit and see what is it that we are looking at when it comes to the moral imperative to, to act. So this graph was drawn from actually these two volumes, from the um, late lessons from early warnings. And we asked the question, how long does it actually take for legislators to do something? How much evidence do you have to have before something happens? And it's a very depressing story, really, because if you, if you think about mercury, um, minimata and, you know, the dancing cats and the whole process of what happened around mercury, well known to industry. When BASF moved its operations to Japan, it actually knew that there were problems with mercury. Nevertheless, the industrial processes went forward and slowly but surely, the fishing population, the, the fishermen and their families and all the poorer people who lived there, who were consuming the fish that were contaminated by the mercury, started presenting all kinds of um, characteristics of what we now know as the Minamata disease. And this is one of the most painful um, diseases that you can get. They call it dancing cats because, in fact, the cats who are also eating the fish can't actually stand on their feet. It's too, too sensitive. It's too painful. The reason we took this story into the book was because it was the classic case of where the doctor who had gone there and was the company doctor knew, actually knew this. There were letters to that effect, but had said nothing until he came to his deathbed, where he made a sort of deathbed confession that he had known all along that mercury was actually the cause of this particular set of diseases. Asbestos, as I said, 107 years to go from the point where we actually knew that there was a problem to where it was actually banned. Tobacco, DDT, climate change, well, okay, we're still going on with climate change, but nevertheless, PCB, lead, and even the ozone layer. So it takes a long time. There's a huge delay. There's an enormous amount of drag. And what we were trying to do is to say, well, when the scientific evidence and early warnings were there and there was enough confidence in the causality, what other things kind of set in? Well, you had to identify the impacts on humans and what was the harm reduction? What, what could you actually do? And then you would be looking for some kind of policy action. And it, it's interesting, but most of these have come from global policy action percolating down into the national, but not always. And I think lead is a really interesting um, example. One of the leaders in dealing with lead pollution was actually the USA. And they took it upon themselves, and you can see successively from the identification of lead being identified as a, as a genuine issue, coming in through the clean water, then the phase-out of lead in gasoline, um, then lead in plumbing was banned, then you keep going and then you get down to housing and then you get lead in paint and the ban coming in in 2009. And then, of course, there was the renovation repair rules and then the total, a ban on total lead content of children's products. So systematically, the US took that scientific evidence and worked from the 1970s through with a big, big drop during the sort of 80s, when, it, you know, when, they, when all of this evidence was coming through. But if you look at the simple question of lead in petrol, 
It took a long time. So if you look on the right-hand side, you can see that leaded petrol in many parts of Africa particularly, but also in, in parts of, um, of uh, Central Asia and Europe, and even North, in uh, Latin America, you still had lead in petrol in 2002, nearly 30 years later. And now in 2017, okay, there's sort of like three countries. Lead in paint, it's basically getting there. But we know enough about lead to know that this is not a good thing to have in paint. It's not something you want on your walls. If you've got children who sort of probably do that and inhale it and many other things, you don't want lead in children's toys. So there are so many reasons why you just need to ban it in daily domestic use. And yet it's taken a long, long time to get into national legislation. So if we think about air quality, um, you'd think, oh, it's a no-brainer. Of course we're going to have loads of impetus and everybody who knows, you kind of, you just breathe it so you know you have to do something about it. And yet in 2015, look at the picture on the left-hand side. Yes, you have 90 countries who've started to move on legislation. Um, yes, you've got countries that are beginning to put in ambient air um, quality and, and, and quality standards and so forth. And, and, but look at how many countries there still are without any ambient air quality standards or any laws or any regulations. And these are potentially going to be the places where the next big young generation is growing up. So you can do the math. If you're going to have a billion people, young people in Africa, growing up in conditions where air pollutants are affecting their neurological development, their cognitive development, their whole, in a sense, um, uh, breathing and, and uh, cardiovascular systems, then we're not giving them a very good start in trying to actually become economically and socially independent. And if you look on the right-hand side, you can see, in effect, what we really need to do is create this policy mix. We, we can't just simply go after the power industry or the transport or buildings or fuel or whatever. We actually need to have policy mixes that are blended together and generate the right kind of outcome. But that is, in a sense, the most preposterous thing because what you're going to ask then is that the Department of Transport has to step up uh, the buildings department or ministry has to step up. The people who deal with households, the social and economic people, have to step up, and so on and so forth. So you realise their quality has got very little to do with the environment ministry. It's actually got to do with everybody else. So everybody else has to actually deal with air quality. So the poor old uh, environment minister, who's usually least in the line really hasn't got a leg to stand on. What he needs is all these other people who are going to come and help him or her deliver the kinds of policy mix that's needed. Well, okay, it's a pretty frustrating job. I can imagine being a Minister of Environment. They're always telling me what a frustrating job it is. They never have enough money. But when you see what's actually required to tackle pollution, you begin to understand why it just is so difficult. Because think about it. Transport. All right, let's have tight standards. Euro 6, emissions will be controlled. They have all the lobbying, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just say you manage to do that, and then you get you know, reductions in acid rain, 
emissions come down and so on. And then you have these health benefits. But now I have to attribute my disease profile, that little proportion to clean transport. Okay, well, that's maybe 10%, all right? So he's going to get 10% of the problems over here. That's the Minister of Transport. Now I'm going to talk to the Agriculture Minister. Oh, it's all those nitrites and nitrates, and that's really not very good for me. So now in my disease profile, I'm going to go to the Minister of Agriculture, and I'm going to say, well, you're responsible for 20% of my problems, so you know, take care of that. And then I'm going to go off to the mayors of the cities and say, well, you're responsible for another 15%. So it becomes really, really difficult to create policy mixes that are, in one sense, able to deliver coherent policies, but at the same time, don't sort of step over each other, don't tumble over each other, don't create unintended consequences. So what is the solution? And I've thought about this for such a long time. It's been, in a sense, it's been my job for, for 40 years, trying to understand why in some places the Minister of Environment manages to pull them all together. In other places, you know, the poor person is sort of still out in the corridor and we're just talking about finances and big railway systems and transport and so on. And what I realised is that what's missing is the moral imperative. It is actually fundamentally clear that we have never, we've never really stood up for a human right to a clean environment. We talk about human rights all the time, but we don't often talk about human right, a human right to a clean environment, a human right to clean air, to clean water and so on. Now, clean water did manage to make it into the Sustainable Development Goals, and you can read it. It's there, and, and it basically is clear that people should have access to clean water. And that's a very, very strong statement. But let me just give you a kind of thought moment. If you are morally challenged and you want to live in a clean environment, how do you put those two together? Well, you can do it through campaigning. You can do it through social pressure. And, you know, you might say, the last straw. There's something I need to tell you. This relationship isn't working. It isn't good for me. I'm breaking up with you. It's not me, it's you. I became dependent on you. And you were always there for me. Even when I was at my worst. But I didn't realize the damage you were doing. You created a toxic environment. Not just for me, but others too. You were suffocating me. We're just no longer compatible. Also, there's one more thing. I met someone else. I'm respected in public. I'm making friends. I feel like I can breathe again. That's how I deserve to be treated. Oh! Don't piss it! Come in, you just don't feel good!
ni siquiera te necesito. Parce que j'ai une autre option. And it's a healthy relationship. So I guess that's the point. Do you want to break up with pollution? I hope you will. These are some of the actions that we try to get people to think about because every one of these is connected to decoupling, detoxifying, enhancing resilience and decarbonizing. And intellectually, you can engage with any one of them. But actually what we're asking people to do is to become morally and ethically bound to having a pollution-free planet. So these kinds of campaigns actually do work. We add up what all the voluntary commitments look like, what people's individual actions look like, and they do make a difference. But in the end, we need a stronger framework. We need something which comes, in a sense, through the mouths of government, through the everyday living. And so I'm going to leave you with the ideas from David Boyd. David Boyd is a newly appointed human rights special rapporteur on clean air on a clean environment. And he speaks very much initially to the right, to the human right for clean air. But it's as strong for a clean environment. Every hour, 800 people are dying, many after years of suffering from cancer, respiratory illnesses or heart disease directly caused by breathing polluted air. Surely, if there is a human right to clean water, there must be a human right to clean air. Both are essential to life, health, dignity, and well-being. On June the 19th, uh, together with five academies from around the world, from the US, Germany, Brazil, and South America, South Africa, we're going to launch a call for action. So it's not a usual call for action. It's not going to put the scientific case. We know enough to act. But what it's going to say is we have a moral obligation to ourselves, but also to that generation of Africans, to the young generation who are growing up, to actually have clean air, clean water, and a clean environment. It is a moral imperative. It's not just a scientific intellectual exercise. It's not just a government policy. It is a fundamental human right that we should actually stand up for. And I hope that uh, on June the 19th, you'll join us, at least watching from wherever you are, but in New York, as all the UN ambassadors and all of the countries sign up for a global call for action. Thank you.